Today's scripture is from Daniel 1, 8 through 16. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord my king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. Before we jump into Daniel, will you join me in prayer? Father, as we come to you this morning, we thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people. Pray that this morning might serve to remind us of your eternal truths. Lord, you formed us, you know our hearts and our deepest thoughts. And more than that, you're present with us in your spirit right now. And so we pray that your spirit would do a work in each of our lives as individuals, but in our lives corporately. Give us hearts that are receptive to what you have for us. Lord, give us the courage to be challenged by this text. More than, more than anything, though, Lord, we pray that we would walk away this morning with a clear vision of who you are and the beautiful life that you've called us to, that you have for us, a life of faithfulness and conviction and love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As Pastor Brian mentioned, we are starting a new series, a six-week series in the book of Daniel. If you're familiar with Daniel, Daniel has 12 chapters in it. The first half of the book, or sorry, the first half of the book, the first six chapters are, um, they're all stories from Daniel's life. And then the second half of the book get into some prophecies, which are fascinating and powerful. Um, but for this series, we're just looking at the stories of Daniel's life. They're famous, fascinating. You've probably heard most of them before. And the reason we're doing this is because we feel just like the book of Esther, which we just finished studying, we feel like the book of Daniel is timely for us. You know, I mentioned last week, that our world is changing rapidly and our culture is changing rather rapidly. And it's not just one thing that's changing, it's a constellation of things. And so if you look at public opinion on things like human sexuality, how much that view has changed over the last 30 years and how far it's strayed from the vision God lays out in the scriptures, that's, that's an obvious one. But there's a lot of things that are changing. It's not just our views of sexuality, it's our views of things like authority, and truth. The Oxford Dictionary, every year they choose a word of the year, and in 2016, the word of the year was post-truth, which is two words. They define post-truth as 
uh, being when objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. And we feel that in our day, that everything feels very subjective and how we relate to truth, how we understand truth. It seems these days it's something that's very different for every individual. The word of the year in 2018, according to Oxford Dictionary, was the word toxic. The one word, def one word definition, which was poisonous. I think we feel that in our culture as well, that as a society, we're losing any sense we might have had about the shared human dignity that we all have about treating each other with charity, about showing mercy to people when they fail and when they fall. The sociologists call this age that we're moving into a post-Christian secular age. And the reason we chose these books to look at is because we want to know how to navigate them well. A lot of what we see in the church right now is fear. And this fear drives a lot of what I would call the foolishness that we see among uh, many Christians in the public square or in the media that Christians are feeling backed in a corner. They feel like the world's changing and they're afraid. And when we operate out of fear, destructive, we operate in destructive manners. And so we chose Daniel just like we chose Esther, acknowledging that God's people have found themselves living as strangers in a strange land before. And God's people, not only have they found themselves in exile, living as strangers, they've also thrived in exile. And that's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for our kids. That we want to know how do we walk in faith in the years to come? And even more, how do we invest and raise up the next generation to walk in faithfulness to Jesus in a culture that's going to be very, very different than the culture that most of us grew up in. And so we're looking at Daniel chapter 1 today, and we're going to look at it under three headings. The first one, they'll make sense as we go along. The first one is the surprising work of God. The second one is the subtle seduction of Babylon. And the third one is the steadfast resolve of Daniel. I'll repeat them again as we go along. But I want to start looking at the surprising work of God which is really the first couple of verses of this chapter, which help us understand how the people of God found themselves living in exile. If you were here for our Esther series, it's important to note that Daniel, the events here took place uh, a little over a century before the events in Esther. And Daniel 1, the first couple of verses, tell us how God's people found themselves no longer living in Jerusalem, but they wound up living 1,700 miles away in Babylon. We read, in the third year of the reign of Je Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So Babylon was a major force back in those days. A few years before this, they defeated Egypt. And while they were on the roll, they said, let's just keep going. And they came and they captured Jerusalem. That's not surprising. What's surprising is the very next verse in which we're told that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. What's surprising is that the reason God's people found themselves living in exile is because God handed them over to their enemies. It's not something that we would expect to read. And the reason why is this, all these events take, about, take place about 400 years 
after the reign of King David. King David was the second king ever over God's people in the Old Testament. He was the best. He wasn't perfect, but he was by far the best king. And then after him, it's a pretty steady decline in the moral character of the nation of Israel. There were some bright spots and some good kings, but as a whole, if you've studied the book of Kings, you know anything of the history of the Israelites, you know that those 400 years were marked by a waning faithfulness, a laziness, a spiritual indifference, that a lot of the kings sought to make political alliances with foreign nations. They put their trust in their military instead of their God and their wealth and their affluence instead of the Lord who saved them. And so Israel for centuries now has been going downhill. And Jehoiakim, he, according to tradition, was a brutal king. He was a tyrant who sought to put to death the prophets that God has sent him, if that tells you anything. God sends him prophets to say, hey, you're not doing a good job. And he says, kill them. I don't want to listen to them. And so all of this culminates here about 600 BC that God, he intervenes. And the way he intervenes is he hands Jehoiakim and the entire nation of Judah over to the Babylonians. Now, in one sense, this was God's judgment on his people, but it was a redemptive judgment. That God, he had greater purposes. It wasn't just, I'm done with you, I'm through with you, I'm going to let them destroy you. It was, no, you need to be refined. You need to be disciplined. You need to learn, once again, your total and utter dependence upon me. And so some of the Israelites, they were taken to go live in Babylon. That's Daniel and his friends. And some remained behind. And while on the surface it feels like this was all judgment, it really was an act of grace. And we know this because in Jeremiah 24, the prophet Jeremiah has a vision. And in this vision, he sees two baskets of figs. One basket of figs, all the figs are good and healthy and ready to eat. The other basket, they're all rotten falling apart and gross and no one will want to eat them. And what the Lord tells Jeremiah is that bad basket of figs, those were the Israelites that the Lord left behind in Jerusalem. And he said, they're going to face the sword and famine and calamity. They're going to face judgment for their actions. But he said, the good fruits, we read this in chapter 24, verse 4 of Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, So I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans, that's Babylon. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them. I think that's a fascinating verse. Sending you away, you're being captured by your enemies, and I'm doing it for your good. In captivity, I'm going to build you up. I'm not going to tear you down. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to strengthen you. This is going to be a time of refining, but ultimately I'm doing this for your good. And then in the very next verse, God says this, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. So here God's saying, I'm going to put you through the fire of exile so that I might renew and revive your faith in me and your trust in me. That while right now it might seem dark and confusing and hard, there's going to be wonderful fruit that's produced because of this. Now, we need to be cautious 
not to make unthoughtful one-to-one correlations between their situation and ours, but I do think there are a couple of lessons we can draw out, even from these first couple of verses, that are echoed throughout Scripture and throughout history that speak to us. And the first lesson is this, that God, he is in complete control over everything that happens. God is in complete control over everything that happens. He's the one who turns the wheels of history, which means... When God's people find themselves being pushed to the margins of society, that's not because God is lacking in power or unaware. When God's people get pushed to the margins, God is not running around in the heavens screaming, code red, code red, pulling alarms. He's in complete control. And he has purposes in it. And so what this means for us, I think number one, if the trend continues, and if we find that as Bible-believing Christians, we are pushed further to the margins, we have to recognize God is in control because that prevents us from taking on a victim mentality or a persecution complex. That's really tempting. A lot of Christians, because they've lost power and influence in culture, they want to take the role of a victim. The problem is when we take on a victim mentality... What that does is it easily leads to fear, and it's fueled by fear, and fear typically manifests itself in either fight or flight, sometimes freeze too. We see this in the church often. It's not the best response. Fight, we get aggressive and angry and combative with culture. Flight, we seek to withdraw from culture and disengage. Or freeze, we just kind of assimilate into the culture but live lives that are no different than the rest of the culture. God doesn't want us to do any of those. God wants us to live lives of faithfulness to him in the midst of a culture that is moving further away from him. We see this even in Jeremiah, the the command God gave to the Jews who were going to live in exile. It's a crucial passage in Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all, all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So imagine this. Just for a minute, hit pause. Imagine you are living in Babylon. You've been captured, put in chains, 1,700-mile trip, wagon or walking or whatever. You show up there. You're disoriented, strange culture, strange language. No one recognizes your faith. And then word gets to you that the prophet Jeremiah has heard from God and he sends this letter. That's what they get here. So he's going to tell us, what does God want from us? Well, this is the word of the Lord. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And so God's saying, yeah, you're going to be out of place and it's going to be strange, but do good there. Remain distinct, he says again and again, but do good. Plant gardens. Seek the peace. Seek the good. Seek the welfare. There's a great overlap between the vision God had for his people in that day and the vision God has for us as his church. That he absolutely wants us to remain distinct, but he also wants to be, us to be people who seek the good of the city. So that's the first lesson. The second lesson we can, we can take from this is that God will often shake things up in order to wake us up. God 
will often shake things up in order to wake his people up. The whole reason God hands Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar in order was to bring about a spiritual renewal among his people. And we learn as we go through the book of Daniel that under Daniel's leadership and in that day and age, there was a greater movement of revival and renewal among God's people than there had been for centuries. Which means that oftentimes the way God works is he will shake things up. He will disturb things. He will disrupt the status quo so that he might wake his people up to truths that they have fallen asleep to. Now, if you're tracking with me, what, what I think that means for us is we can look at our moment and our time and culture. I think some people look at it and they say, man, it's going to get really, really hard. It is, but it's also a time of tremendous opportunity. We have greater opportunity than I think Christians have had for decades, if not for generations in this country. There is a possibility for God to do such a deep work of renewal in the years to come, which is hard for people to see right now. But I have faith and I have hope, and we see that that's often what God does. The book of Daniel, it's not a book about God's people wilting away in captivity. It's about them flourishing and thriving. It's about the possibility of living in exile and rediscovering the wonders of who God is and what he's done. And so that's the posture that I hope we as a people take. That instead of fear, instead of anger, instead of withdrawal, we could actually look at where we are at this point in history and we could say, we're living in a time of great possibility and opportunity. God could do something really amazing in this time, in our day, through us and through our children. And what we'll see in Daniel is that's what God's desire is, but we also see that there's a challenge to that. And that's my second point, what I call the subtle seduction of Babylon. Because while God had purposes for Daniel and his friends living in exile, he had purposes to refine them and strengthen their faith, Nebuchadnezzar had purposes for them as well. We learn in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1 that as the Israelites are rolling into Babylon, that King Nebuchadnezzar, he appointed his chief eunuch to kind of stand by the gate and look over all of the people being brought in, all the captives being brought in. And he said, I want you to choose for me some young men who have royal blood, they've got influence and position among the Jewish people, who have good physique, who have good looks, and who are really, really smart. And so they go, and they're looking, and really what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here is he's saying, I want you to go find me some influencers. Go find the kind of people who've got a lot of followers on their Instagram account. People are excited, you know, to, to tag along with them. Make sure that they're young, and the reason he wants young people it's because usually the younger someone is, you know, the wetter the cement, you could say. Uh, it'd be easier to influence and change them and shape them. But what Nebuchadnezzar wants to do is he wants to find some of these Jews who are coming in, train them in Babylon's history, customs, religion, and ways, so that he could then send them back to Jerusalem 
as his ambassadors or his representatives. That he could take these people who were God-fearing Jews, or maybe they were lukewarm Jews, and he could kind of get the Jewishness out of them, fill them with Babylonian culture, and then send them back so that they could go tell all of their countrymen and women, hey, the Babylonians aren't all that bad. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's not all that bad. So he says, you know what? You're going to learn a new language. You're going to adopt a new wardrobe. I'm going to immerse, yourself, immerse you in our culture. It's a program of social engineering. And then we get to verses 6 and 7, and we realize that it's not just a new language or new wardrobe, but we also learn that the chief of the eunuchs gave them names, new names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Now, this might not seem like a big deal to us. If you've ever taken a foreign language course, you know that oftentimes you're given a new name in the native tongue. And in our day, names, they're not all that significant, right? I mean, we name our kids Apple or Blue Ivy or any number of things because we think it's unique and no one else has heard of it. But in that day, names were very, very significant. And so all of these names, the Hebrew names that they had, referenced God and the goodness of God and the life of God. And so in Hebrew, the name Daniel meant God is my judge. I mean, that's a strong name, isn't it? Only God can judge me. God is my judge. But they changed his name to Belteshazzar, which most likely means something along the lines of the, the treasurer or the prince of Baal, who was a false god of the Babylonians. The same goes for Daniel's three friends. They're all given these different names. And what we see through the book is they're maintaining these dual identities. That when Daniel writes about himself and his friends, he writes about themselves with their Hebrew names, but they're responding still to the new names that they were given in Babylon. And this really reveals an awful lot about what the book is about. It's about living in this tension and maintaining two identities. And God commanded his people to be a blessing to Babylon, to pray, to do good, to seek its welfare. At the same time, God warned them against losing their distinctiveness. So they're called to bless but remain distinct. But they're kind of caught in this current that's trying to overwhelm them and trying to rob them of all of their distinctiveness. So the big question of the book of Daniel is how do you remain faithful to God while also seeking the peace and prosperity of a society that is at odds with your faith, and that relentlessly competes for your allegiance at every turn? How do you remain faithful to God while seeking the peace and prosperity of a society that is at odds with our faith and is relentlessly competing for our allegiance at every moment? Now, this is going to look different. That question will take on a different shape for different people. For some of you, how do you succeed in business in a culture that values success above all? without losing your soul in the process. It's not wrong to want to succeed. It's not wrong to want to prosper in your business. But we live in a culture that values success, at least in some areas, above everything else. I saw an article yesterday in the New York Times. I love my children, but sometimes my clients need me more. We are a culture that, I mean, if you watch modern shows, it seems like marriages and families, those are negotiable. Jobs are not. The brave narrative in our day is you leave 
your family, your spouse, if that's what it takes so that you can actually stay with your job. And so we have people who are willing to make all kinds of sacrifices to succeed. So how do you succeed while retaining biblical convictions and holding to biblical truth? You're not willing to do everything the rest of the world's going to do. How do we live in a society of such affluence without totally being caught up in it? How do you honor God with your body and your sexuality in a culture that has been so thoroughly saturated with and influenced by pornography? A culture in which something like Tinder, which 20 years ago would have been relegated to the back page of adult magazines, now it's socially acceptable and celebrated. How do you wield all the technology we have without being controlled by it. How many of us in this room, the last thing we do at night is we look at our phone and the first thing we do in the morning is we look at our phone? You know, not too long ago, I heard that Apple and Google, they all collect all that data. And so on a mainframe somewhere in California probably, there, there is a file on you that exists. They know what time you get up in the morning and what time you go to bed at night just because of how enslaved we can become to our technology. And I don't say all of this to make you feel bad as much as to say we feel this tension. And Daniel was living in this tension. How do we engage and yet not lose our souls in the process? And I think the first step is recognizing the nature of the challenge that we face. And here's what I mean. If you grew up in church, when you think of Daniel, you probably think of a fiery furnace or a lion's den, which are very real, very frightening threats against Daniel and his friends. And we're going to look at those in the weeks to come. But here in chapter 1, there's none of that. Here in chapter 1, there's no threats to Daniel's health or safety. Nowhere as he said, you need to bow down and renounce your faith in the one true God and worship all of our gods. Instead, it's, hey, we want you to learn our language. I'll read some of our best books, wear some of our clothes, eat some of our food. You know what? The name Daniel is way too hard to pronounce, so we're going to give you a new name, Belteshazzar. <laughs> it's subtle. Nowhere are we told that a line was drawn, renounce your faith in the one true God. It's subtle. And that's the subtle strategy of Babylon. It's actually, it's evil, but it's a brilliant strategy. If you make them renounce their faith or make them make a choice, you can create martyrs. Instead, what we should do, this is Nebuchadnezzar think, thinking, if we immerse them so deeply in our culture, we'll change them and they won't even realize that they've been changed. They'll be like the frog in the kettle. It'll happen slowly, so slowly, they won't even be aware of it. Sometimes our faith is going to be challenged with threats to our physical safety and lives, but that's not usually how it happens. Usually it comes much subtle, in much more subtle ways than that. It's through the little things over time Come on, that's around us so much that, that with enough time we find ourselves conformed to the world around us without even realizing it. It wasn't a willful decision. 
You know, in Romans 12, if you're familiar with the book of Romans, it's Paul's great work. The first 11 chapters are deep, deep theology. Some parts are even hard to understand. And then in chapter 12, he gets to the application. He says, therefore, verse 1 of chapter 12, in view of God's mercy, let us offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And then in verse 2, he says, but do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so I think one of the, the first ways that, one of the first things we, we need to do if we want to thrive in exile is we have to recognize how subtle the seduction is, how it's little things, day in and day out. We have to realize that every day we're being formed, whether we realize it or not. What we buy, what's marketed to us, what we encounter on social media or in our neighborhood. All day, every day, people are trying to form us. This is Satan's strategy. It's the strategy of this world. And that's why Paul said, don't be conformed. Because he knows if you don't put a resistance up, you will be conformed. And so, first question, how are you being formed? Are you even aware that you're being formed? What's forming you? And the reality is we're all going to be shaped by our culture. It's inevitable. It's impossible to not be shaped by our culture to some extent. But we can, we can control just how much we are shaped by culture. And that leads to my third and final point the steadfast resistance of Daniel. What's so interesting in the passage that Hannah read for us is up until this point where Daniel refuses the food and the wine from the king's table, there's no resistance on his part. Like they don't res resist the, the clothes or the language or the program. And probably they didn't resist because they didn't really have much of a choice in the matter. I mean, I guess they could have resisted and just laid down and potentially died as martyrs, but we all know that sometimes martyrdom's the easy way out. Sometimes it's a lot harder to live a life of faithfulness, to live into the call that God put on them to be a blessing. And so they seem to roll with what's going on. I'm not making a moral judgment, just an observation. And that's what makes this so fascinating. New name, new clothes, new everything. But then we read in verse 8 that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And the question is why? Like why is this the turning point for Daniel? And there's been a lot of debate about this, a lot of ink spilled. Some say that, that the reason why is because Daniel, uh, the king's table, the king's food violates God's cleanliness laws concerning food, the kosher laws. But we know that wine is kosher, and so that can't be the case. It can't be that all the food was prohibited by God's word. Others say, well, we know that in that culture they sacrificed their food to idols before they ate it, and so Daniel didn't want to eat food that was sacrificed to idols. But the problem with that is the vegetables would have been sacrificed to idols as well. And so why, why does Daniel say, I'm not going to eat from the king's table? Why does he turn down the food and the wine? 
We don't know for certain, but here's my best guess. We all know that food and drink are very powerful things. When someone visits Louisville, if I have a friend from out of town coming, they'll call me. You know what? The first thing they ask me, almost always, where should we go eat? If they don't ask me, they say, hey, we're coming to Louisville. What should we do? You know what I respond? You should eat. Go places. Like there's something about eating a culture's food. That's like the final and full immersion into the culture. A few years back, I got to go to, to visit London and Paris, the same trip. We went to London first. No offense if you're from London or you love London. If I never went back to London, it would be too soon. I, it was horrible. It's 95 degrees, no air conditioning, but the food there was just horrible. People think fish and chips, no salt, no seasoning, no nothing. It's very bland. They eat blood sausages. It was really like, can I get out of here? And then to make matters worse, we went from London to Paris. And I don't know if you've ever been to Paris, but Paris, you can go anywhere in the city, and the food's amazing. Every restaurant is five stars. Two days in, I called my wife, and I said, I think the Lord might be calling us to be missionaries in Paris. It's like I could just, you know, if I had an endless supply of money, I could spend every day sitting at a cafe in Paris. Now people ask, what do you think of Paris? I loved it. What do you love about it? Well, a lot of things, but the food was amazing. It's, that's the power of food. I mean, if you went to Paris, but you like packed all your food in, you bought like Cheez-Its and that's all you're eating all week long, because it'd be really hard to say you even visited Paris, wouldn't it? You were there and you didn't eat anything? So I think what happened... There are others who would agree. I think what happened here is Daniel got to the place where he was feeling just how powerful the pull of the culture was. The clothes, the dress, everything he's reading. And I think Daniel knew himself well enough to know that if he started to eat the king's food and drink his wine, that he'd be done for. That he'd be swallowed up by the culture. Sinclair Ferguson writes... High living very easily masters the senses and blunts the sharp-edged commitment of Christians. The good life that Daniel was offered was intended by the king to wean him away from the hard life to which God had called him. It would encourage him to focus on himself and on a life of enjoyment. It would lead him to think of himself no longer as a servant of God, but as a companion of kings. Be honest, as I was preparing this sermon, I was praying that it was just breaking the law for him to eat the food, because the application's a lot easier. Don't break the law. Obey God. This is harder. Because it's it's a bit relative to each person. But the lesson I think is Daniel knew that there were so many parts of the Babylonian culture that he couldn't avoid. But he also knew if he didn't draw a line in the sand somewhere, he'd get swallowed up by it all. He'd be utterly conformed. And so he takes something that's not bad or evil in and of itself, but he says no to it so that he might protect his soul. And we've got to be really clear here. The lesson is not like the people who really love God are vegans. 
The lesson is not you need to go on a vegetarian diet. The invitation of Daniel 1, I think, is for us to consider our lives and ask, do I have a line like that? Where do I draw the line? What things in this world could I indulge in, yet I choose not to because I know that they will deform me? And I'm not talking about blatant sin. I'm not, I'm not talking about, I have a line, I'll never cheat on my wife. Well, that's great. I'm talking about things that you, you could do that's, that maybe is not sin for everyone, but it might be sin for you. I'm talking about all the gray areas where 90% of life is lived. You know, we as a church, we believe and celebrate the freedom that we have in Christ, and I don't want to lose that. But oftentimes, freedom can lead to slavery. We get so defensive of our freedom as Christians. I can watch what I want to watch in Christ. Well, maybe. But do you ever say no to things because you know if you watch them, they're going to form you in ways that are going to lead you away from God and the life he's called you to? Do we ever say no to things not just because they're sinful, but because we don't want to be formed or shaped by them? Maybe it's food. Maybe it's wine. Maybe it's bourbon or alcohol. Maybe it's the mall. Materialism. Maybe it's what you watch on TV. I don't know. And I kind of want to leave it pretty generic because I trust that the Spirit works among us. What I do know is it's a voluntary choice that's made. It's not something that you hand down and, you know, across the board force everyone to do. Instead, it's a personal choice to restrain. You know, the saints of old would call this temperance or self-control. It's voluntary and it's private. I think that's really important to see. Daniel doesn't do this to show Nebuchadnezzar that he won't bow to him or that's not what this is about. He actually, I mean, Hannah read it for us. Daniel's like, just for 10 days, we'll eat broccoli and leeks and see what happens. And they're like, okay, 10-day experiment. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. And so Daniel, the whole point here is the eunuch's like, if I disobey Nebuchadnezzar's orders, he might kill me. And Daniel's like, all right, idea time. What if we eat it? And let's just see. So they eat it, and we're told that they were better in appearance because in that culture, the fatter you were, the better in appearance you were. In our culture, you go on vegetable diet to lose weight and to get thinner. In a strange way in that culture, at that moment in time, God was like, here, eat broccoli, asparagus, leeks, and I'll put 10 pounds on you. Now, the reason it's highlighted is because that means when Daniel and his three friends rolled in with the rest of the recruits, they didn't look any different. In fact, they looked better because they were keeping it private. It wasn't this line in the sand with Nebuchadnezzar, I refuse to eat your food, I refuse to... It was very personal, it was very private. It was Daniel looking at his own life and saying, I don't need to tell others about this. I don't need to post about this on social media or pick it. This is just me. It's between me and God. 
It's a decision I've made because I don't want to be conformed. I'll tell you, this takes extraordinary wisdom and discernment. It takes knowing yourself, knowing how you're wired. It takes a lot of courage. One of the challenges I find in preaching are there are things that I, there are lines in the sand I've drawn from my life. But I want to be careful not to put them on you because they might not be lines that you need. But you do need lines. We need to guard ourselves. Paul wouldn't begin all of his application in Romans with don't be conformed to the world unless there was a very real temptation for us to be conformed to the world. The beauty is, in chapter 1, that God honored their obedience and their faithfulness. God saw what they did. He blessed them. blessed them with 10 pounds extra each. He blessed them with wisdom and knowledge. And ultimately, God blessed them that they were able to take part in a deep work of spiritual renewal that happens among God's people in Babylon. The chapter ends telling us that Daniel was there in Babylon until the first year of King Cyrus. King Cyrus was a Persian king who came to power 70 years after this point, and he actually set God's people free and released them back to Jerusalem. And Daniel includes that here to say, God was faithful to me through and through. And he's always faithful to his people. But one of the things so many of the, the commentators and the scholars on Daniel point out is they say, because it's an interesting way to begin, I'm going to just eat broccoli. And then very quickly we end up with Daniel's friends in a fiery furnace or Daniel facing lions. All the scholars and commentators, they all point out that in many ways, Daniel's future was determined by this seemingly small action. That it was because he made this decision here that he was able to make the bigger decisions later. I mean, I think we all, I hope we're all learning in life that faith and self-control and courage, they don't just like spring naturally from our hearts one day. Like, they're things that have to be developed. Daniel, he wasn't born with the courage. He wasn't five years old, throw me in the lion's den, I don't care. No, it was something that was developed to get to that place where you could say, do your best, I'll face it. Daniel's friends, <laughs> I mean, they're thrown into a fiery furnace and they're willing to go. Like, how do you get to that place? Well, it takes years of training and discipline. It takes development. And so it is with us. The way we grow in virtue and in character, in wisdom and in courage, in distinctness, not for the sake of just being distinct, but so that we might bear witness to our good God, comes through discipline and training. Saying no with the, the smaller things, so when the bigger decisions come, you can respond correctly. This is why Paul in 1 Timothy 4 says, train yourselves for godliness. 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I beat my body and I make it my slave. There's real power in simplicity and restraint and self-control that grows you in ways that nothing else can. And in a culture of abundance like ours, it's one that we, we struggle with maybe more than any. Like we have so much, it's so hard, I think, for so many of us to just say no when something's right in front of us but I'm choosing not to because I don't want to be shaped by it.
Jesus says, whoever is faithful with little will be entrusted with much. And that's what we see in Daniel's life. And I want to end by saying that, you know, the point of the sermon in some ways it is, let, let's be like Daniel. Because our church would be a powerful church if we were all like Daniel. But also, if I say, hey, let's be like Daniel, it can overwhelm us and it can, can crush us. Because the reality is that Daniel Daniel's a bit of an anomaly in the Old Testament. There's not a whole lot like him. There's a whole lot of people who failed and failed and failed. And the story of the Bible, while the Bible does call us to live lives of virtue and beauty, it also gives us hope when we fail. And I think that the key we need to understand from chapter 1 in Daniel, Daniel's secret, if you wanted to call it that, his faithfulness to God, it was fueled because he knew God's faithfulness to him. The reason Daniel can say no to the vegetables, the reason he can step into these things is because he knows that God is for him. He knows the words God has given him and the promises God has made. Again and again in chapter 1, we read, God gave, God gave, God gave, God gave favor, God gave wisdom. A life of faithfulness is born when you know God's faithfulness to you and that he's for your good. As we move to the Lord's table, we're reminded of the wonderful grace that God has shown us in Christ. The night Jesus betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and after giving thanks to God for his provision, Jesus broke it, and then he took the cup, and he said, this is the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so the Lord's table is a place where we can come with all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of the compromises we've made, and we all make them, myself included, it's where we can come and be reminded that God loves us, that his love for us is unwavering in Christ. It's also a place where we can come and we can do examination. When you know you're safe with God in Christ, it enables you to ask, Lord, what line might you be calling me to draw? What might you be calling me to step out of or to pull back from? What might you be calling me to push into? If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ who gave his life for you. Let me pray.